Every parent whose oldest child is a daughter, and it's not a sexist statement, it's just not, but if your oldest child is a daughter, you usually face a very similar problem. You often have to remind them, your oldest daughter, that they are not the parent. If you have an oldest daughter, often I can remember going up to my daughter Ginger and saying, Ginger, please, let your brother Joseph out of the chokehold. Right now, you are not the parent. Let go. We will take care of it. You are not the parent. Right, Ginger? How often? How many? See? Thumbs up. See, inside of us, if we were honest, deep down in us, we love control. We want to control not just our own lives, but everybody else around us. It's in us. It's, I call it world domination syndrome. We want to dominate not just our own lives, but everything. Because we know it's the best for everybody and every situation. And it really gets bad. I mean, this is normal for most of us. But it really gets bad when we get frustrated with God for the way he's ordering the world. Remember when I first started, uh, I did a an internship at a church to understand what it was as a youth pastor. And we went to a country fair, and we were given a clipboard, and we were going to do evangelism by asking questions. So we'd go up to people with, I'd usually try to pick people with T-shirts that said, I'm with her, had tattoos that said, I'm with her. So it was kind of a dangerous area. I like to see people's reactions. And I would say, so do you think Jesus is Lord, lunatic, or liar? And my objective was to get into a conversation. And honestly, people don't like those surveys, except there was one question that worked every time. I didn't like to ask it because it, it sort of felt blasphemous. I don't like this question, but I'll tell you what. Every time I asked it, people would answer, and here's the question. It's right here. If you were God, if you were God of this world, what would you do differently? And nine times out of ten, people had an answer. They'd say stuff like this. You know what, if I was God, I would forgive all the sin without ever having to kill my son and ever having anybody to ask for forgiveness. I'd just forgive the sin. Why can't he just forgive sin? I'd have answers like this. If I was God, I would make enough food in this earth that nobody would have to starve and we wouldn't need money. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't have money? I heard one person say, if I was God, and he was dead serious, I would wipe all evildoers off the face of the earth in a click of a finger. If I was God. People want power. We'd love to have power. Actually, Psalm 2, 2 and 3 says, The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Which means... The kings of the earth don't want God to rule. They want it. They want it. And so do we. We all want to rule. The problem is God has given this duty to his son alone. And this duty of ruling includes rendering vengeance and receiving glory. And so the two untouchables, and that's the title of our thing, it's not yours. It's not mine, it's his alone. And those two untouchables are vengeance and receiving glory. And so we're going to find this in the book of 1 Samuel, because David got it, but he also didn't get it. 
And then we're going to see it in 1 Samuel chapter 24, 25, and 26. So open up your Bibles. We're going to read from chapter 24, 1 through 4, and then 26, 1 to 8. And you'll see it's kind of similar. Chapter 24, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was chasing David. The Philistines came and invaded them, so Saul left chasing David. So he's going back to chasing David. He wants to kill him. Remember last week, Saul wants David dead. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now this is kind of a funny story, so if you can imagine. Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, that means his best soldiers, out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That means he had to take a whiz. That's what that means. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. So Saul's going to chase David. David's hiding in a cave. Saul just happens to go into that same cave to go to the bathroom, and his buddies say, Hey, kill him. Look at chapter 26, verses 1 through 8. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hekeliah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, where 3,000 chosen men of Israel, same strong soldiers, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekeliah, which is beside the road east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So Saul's camping and he's sleeping. And David's spies catch him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Joab's brother, Abishi the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishi said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishi went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around them. Then Abishi said to David, God has given your enemies into your hands this day. So twice David had a chance to kill Saul. Did he do it? We're going to find out. But before we do, we're going to talk a little bit about our hearts and this whole idea of wanting to play God, wanting control. Because we like to play God. Like I said earlier, we like to tell people what to do, and we even take personal offense. We even take personal offense when people don't do things the way we want them to do it. It's really a weird thing. I have it in me and so do you. I have seen people scream at the TV when things aren't going the right way. I have seen, I have seen people post nasty things on Twitter and Facebook, yell at their kids and other people's kids because they want control and they want people to do things their way. Humans have an enormous talent for wanting people to be under their thumb. You can kind of feel it sometimes when people walk into the room. They think you're underneath them. And they like it that way. It's really strange. 
So Tears for Fears was right, Bill. One of your favorite 80s bands. Everybody wants to rule the world. They do. They were right. Bill used to dress up just like them. I love to give Bill a hard time. <laughs> David's case, Saul definitely wanted to rule his world, and he wanted to kill David because David was a thorn in his side. David was threatening Saul's glory, so Saul went after David and tried to kill him at every turn. In fact, some scholars believe at this time in 1 Samuel, they think Saul is demon-possessed. He's sort of like Plankton on SpongeBob. He's just crazy for power. So after running away and hiding for 10 years plus, don't you think it would be a good thing for David just to get rid of Saul? 10 years. David had his chance. We already, re we already read Saul was served up on the silver platter in chapter 24. Let's go back to that again. If you look in verse 3, he was relieving himself. He's taking a potty break. And he chose the cave, just happened to choose the cave where David and his men were. And as they heard the tinko echoing off the cave walls, they whispered to David in verse 4. Listen to their hearts in verse 4. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So do whatever you kill the guy, David. Do it right now. Do it. They are also lying. They said, hey, remember when God told you that you can take his throne wherever you want? I don't think God ever told David that. God did say you're going to have the throne, but he didn't say take it whenever you want. But I'm sure if he did, if he chose to kill Saul, everybody would understand his men would probably love him for it. Because David was, after all, more capable. He was honest. He was good, right? So why couldn't he just kill Saul? It's interesting, Satan used the same tactic with Jesus in the desert. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan took Jesus above all the kingdoms of the earth. And he goes, if you just bow to me, they'll be yours right now. Go ahead. Right now. Why don't you? Why don't you? In chapter 25, go to chapter 25, there's, a more, there's an even more subtle story. And when you read it, even when I first read this, you feel like David has every right to do what he wants. Because this guy that David should have killed offended him. He was underneath him. Look at starting in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There's a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Boy, he's rich. He was sharing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of Nabal's wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning. I mean, she was a very smart lady. And she was beautiful. But the man was harsh. He was badly behaved. He was just a wretched man. He was also a Calebite. That means he's a descendant of Caleb. Caleb was that guy that went in at the age of 80 to take the land. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was sharing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So he's saying, Go and greet Nabal and say to Nabal, Peace be to you and peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. 
and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask you young men, and they will tell you, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. What you don't know is when he's shearing his sheep and he's letting his sheep graze, David's men are actually protecting him from the Philistines. So Nabal's sheep and shearers are protected because David's men. So as David says, can you give us some food? We're kind of hungry. It's a feast day. We'd like to eat a little bit more. So verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And they waited. So they said, Nabal, is it possible you could help our servant David? And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? He's a grumpy old man. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. What he's saying is this guy, we're going to kill him. This rotten, nasty, Nabal actually means good-for-nothing fool. We're going to kill this good-for-nothing fool. Who was this guy? He wasn't the caliber of David. David was the anointed one. David was the next king. David was the ruddy one. David was the, he was the one that people sang songs of. So Nabal knew who he was. He's just acting as a grumpy, selfish man. He deserved to die, didn't he? I mean, I can understand Saul. Saul's the king. You don't want to take away the king's anointed, but Nabal, a fool, a fat man who just eats his food all day and grumpy about it. Did you ever see guys like that, that they just think everything's theirs? I remember camping next to these people, and they just eat, neat, neat, and they were just, they didn't, it was all theirs. Never wanted to share. That's Nabal. He deserved to die. If I was there, I'd say, go ahead, David, kill him. I know I would say that. It's my heart. We do this every day. Those terrorists, man, they don't deserve to live. Some of you say this about the president. Some of you say this about the last president. Some of you have whispered to yourself in a heart concerning your neighbor. The world would be a better place if they weren't around. Let me ask you a question. Who, who made you God? Who made you God? I'm just curious. I want to just briefly share a story of a man who played God and how dangerous it can be. His name was Maximilien Robespierre. I find, I find this history of the French Revolution very fascinating because it's the precursor to the Russian communistic takeover, and it's the same heart in all of us who want to play God. It was very apparent in Robespierre, and the reason why I bring up Robespierre is because he had 40,000 people in a year and a half's time killed by the guillotine. The guillotine was that sharp blade that came down, comes down and chops the neck off. 40,000 people. The ironic part about Robespierre is he really was not a bad guy. He wasn't. He was actually thought he was so good, his friends called him the incorruptible one. He was of such pure ideology that he couldn't be wrong. Here's some things I learned about him. He, number one, believed that people were fundamentally good. 
we're all virtuous. And he thought his opinion was the most, most, uh, he was right because he thought about things more than your average person because he's brilliant. He's a brilliant guy. And so because he was smart, because he thought about it more than the average person, his motives were sincere and he was good. He thought he's a good man. Second thing we learned about him is he believed everybody deserved equality. The kings and the royals had no right to rule at all over the peasants and the poor. Everybody deserved equality, both in opportunity and outcome. That's what he believed, because he said we're all, we're all equal. Humanism said we're all equal. But the kicker is he believed his desire for power to make sure everybody was equal was pure, and everybody else's desire for power was impure. They wanted power for power's sake. I want power so I can make everybody equal. So therefore, he thought his desire for power was pure. And then the third thing, he believed it was his duty to protect those who couldn't protect themselves and punish those who wanted power. Instant punishment. He thought mercy was a sign of weakness. So he felt it was his moral duty to remove people from the face of the earth who disagreed with him. And he did. 40,000 off with their heads. He started to become paranoid, and he'd do the same thing to some of his friends. And then people started saying, man, this guy's dangerous. So they chopped his head off. It's really kind of, when you take vengeance, it starts in a bad circle of people taking vengeance against you. So be very careful when you want to play God. You want to know when you're starting to think you're God? Here's very simple. Here it is. Watch how this logic works. In your heart, you think, I, you begin with this premise. I am a good person. I am a good person. And because, watch the logic, because I'm good, therefore I'm right. And if anyone ever disagrees with me, they are wrong. And then the final thing is they are probably wrong because they are bad. That's how the mindset of a God works. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, so I have the right to get my way. We need to learn to let go. What this is called, it's called malice. Remember Abraham Lincoln said, may we have malice towards none? We need to really let go of control over others. We need to live as David did and Abigail. More importantly, let's look what they did. So when it came to wanting power, David, he really did have a good heart. He did something that struck him to the core. Look at verse 4 of 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to behold. So David, why don't you kill him? So David, it said, arose and he stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Saul's robe was royal garments. He cut off, some people believe, the insignia to show that. See how close? I could have killed royalty. But watch what David says. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord. The Lord's anointed. And to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. Afterwards, David also rose, went out of the cave, and he said, Saul, my lord, the king. 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? So he's, he didn't kill Saul, but he did cut off his insignia and it cut him to the heart. I shouldn't even have done that. He realized, here's what he realized, that God's anointed Saul. What that means is God set Saul apart for a purpose. And if he's still alive, his purpose isn't finished yet. And who am I to interfere in God's purpose? So even though his men gave him convincing reasons to kill, David says something in verse 11 through 14 that's profound. Listen closely. David says, verse 11, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then he says this, verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And then he says, who did you really come out to seize? A dead dog. I'm just a flea. I'm nothing. So I'm not, I'm not even worth pursuing, Saul. In other words, David sees himself rightly, and he puts God in his rightful place as king. He knows God will take care of the wrongs, and he trusts that he will accomplish it in his time. Now, if we go to chapter 25, this isn't always true. David didn't always act this way. And especially if the person who ticked him off was his inferior. It's interesting. Proud people respond well to people above them. It's really interesting. Proud people are very humble when people have a title above them. But when somebody's underneath them, proud people react like, I'm going to pound them. It's interesting when parents, they're really kind to their, to their bosses, but their kids become their employees, and they better behave. It's really weird how pride people, they seize who has the power, who's the alpha male? Okay, I'll respect the alpha male, but those other people got to respect me because I'm more alpha than them. That's sort of what's happening here. Now David, in verse 13 straps on his sword. Every man also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went, after, went up after David, while 200 remained. So David got 400 of his choice men to go kill this slob, Nabal. Nabal had no chance, and David was ticked. I would not want David to be ticked at me. He had red hair too. Red-haired guys are dangerous. Watch what happens. One of his young men in verse 14 knew what David was like, so he said to Abigail, Behold, I can, I can hear this guy, Hey, Abigail, uh, David's getting his men, and he's going to get our master. I'm telling you, the men were good to us. We suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything when they were there. They were a wall to us both by day and night. Verse 17, Now therefore, Know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is a worthless man, by the way. He is a slob. That's kind of what he's saying to Abigail. So Abigail, look at verse 18. I love what she did. It said she made haste. She said, uh-oh, I, 
I better do something because he's going to die and all the men of his house are going to die. I probably will die. Everything's going to be slaughtered by David. So she makes haste and she brings a ton of tasty food and drinks on a welcome wagon to persuade David. If she, she persuades David by appealing to his hunger, if she can feed him enough, maybe his anger would subside. So she meets David in 23 to 28. Look what happens. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt, please. Let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of the servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless, worthless fellow. In other words, David, he's not worth your time. Just let him go. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and follies with them. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be his Nabal. In other words, she's saying, just, I'm, I want to save you from guilt. Don't take it on yourself, David. And he realized that Ooh, his anger almost got him into trouble, not just with Nabal, but with God himself. And so verse 32, listen to David. David says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to this day to me. May Blessed be your discretion and blessed be to you. And she was pretty good looking too, so you know David was kind of attracted to her. God uses good looks, do you know that? That's why I'm up here preaching. Did you know that? No, I'm kidding. I'm, you're falling asleep. I've got to wake you up. Got to wake you up. This, this lady was amazing because, because David restrained, because David restrained, it gave God time to enter. And look at what happens in verse 37 and 38. Let's start in 36, actually. So Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he's holding a feast in his house. He's eat, eating and drinking again. All, he's, all of this, his animals are his. Like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, meaning he was, he was really drunk. It says he was really drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, so he's probably hung over, what do you want? What do you want? His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died, so he probably had a massive stroke and a heart attack when he realized, I almost got slaughtered by David. God took care of him. God took care of him. God avenged the wrong, and David understood. David got it. So... We've, we know three stories, and I just have three lessons for us, three lessons that I glean when it comes to playing God and why we should never do it, why we should never attempt it. And I'm just going to name these pretty quick, but I want you to think through this. Three lessons why we should never play God, especially if you like to control people and rant at your TV. Here's why you've got to be very careful. Number one, if you decide to play God, you may have misinterpreted God's will and messed with his glory. How do you know what God's doing? Who are you? How do you know what God's trying to accomplish? Do you really know what God's trying to accomplish on a daily basis? Do you really get it? I was talking to Kathy 
Harrison, our secretary, and she said, yeah, God, I was explaining this to her, and she said, I once heard it, God is working together a tapestry. The, out, the top side is where the beauty is. We usually see the underside, the threads, and we don't really understand it, but when you finally flip it and see it, you're like, oh, that's where the stitches are going. We have to allow room for God to change our plans and expectations because only he knows the end from the beginning. I'll never forget when I was a youth pastor, my second year, I went to Moody Bible Institute and I had a student go to Moody Bible Institute with me. He was from a pretty tough home and he loved it. And after he went to Moody Bible Institute, he considered going to youth ministry and his dad came over to my house the next day and he goes, my son will not ever go into the ministry. He's going to work with me the rest of his life. Please, stop trying to influence him. I didn't say anything. After about a couple months, the family quit going. I'll tell you what, I know what's happened to this kid. He has really run from God. He really has run from God. And I think to a degree, maybe his dad hindered what God was doing in his life. Because he had better plans. I want you to go to Romans 11. Look at Romans 11, verse 34 to 36, and it's a question. Romans got, uh, Paul is laying out this whole plan of salvation. He gets to Romans chapter 11, he's done with his argument, and all he can do is praise God, but he wants us to see God's tapestry, his majesty. And in verse 34 he says, Who has known, uh, this is Romans 11, 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Have you ever counseled God? Like, has God come to you with his problems and said, please sit down, God, I'll listen to you, I'll help you out? Really? You've been his counselor? We like to give counsel to God. Verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Meaning, have you ever done something for God where he owes you anything? Well, well, no. In fact, I owe him everything. Yes, that's his point. And in verse 36, he said, So from him and through him and to him are all things. What's interesting is verse 36, a lot of people use this as the Trinity, for from him the Father and through him the Spirit and to him Christ are all things. To him be glory. To him be glory. Amen. Number two, if you decide to play God, you may have interfered with God's work, especially, especially his work of vengeance. I know you want to get people back, but sometimes we step in the way of God getting them back, and he does a whole lot better job of us than we do. If David would have killed Nabal, he would have killed Nabal's whole, Nabal's whole family. But this way, I am telling you, Nabal had a heart attack 10 days later, and I'm sure his men said, wow, David was going to kill him. He restrained, and God killed him. Holy mackerel. We better start worshiping God. It was a much better job than you. Turn over one chapter in Romans. Look at Romans 12, 19 to 21. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It says it like that. Don't worry. I'll repay. I'll repay, 
says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think the best way, if anybody is really, you feel offended by them, the idea is that give them something to drink, do good to them. Jesus says it like this, pray for your enemies. I often ask God, who am I really mad at? And every once in a while he'll put somebody in my mind and I've, I have to pray for them. Do you? Or do you like, oh, kill that guy. He can do a much better job than we can. I wrote this down. I think we enter a dangerous land when we try to usher into the kingdom of God through our own efforts, especially through politics. We, we a lot of times, put our salvation on politics. Did you know that God's kingdom is already established right now? It's established. And Christianity, this thing that we participate in, this philosophy called Christianity, is more about preparing our hearts to receive a kingdom than already is than trying to build a kingdom right now. The kingdom already exists. Christianity is about getting our heart prepared for that kingdom when it shows up instead of trying to build the kingdom from the ground down. That is why Paul, so in a way you could say this, God wants a kind of people God wants a kind of people, not a kind of politics or even a kind of nation. That's not his goal. He wants a kind of people. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.22, listen to what Paul says. For he who, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Meaning, if you were called into Christianity and you were, you're in slavery, you're free. Wait a minute, why doesn't he say if you're a slave, why don't you fight to get out of that slavery? And this is different kind of slavery. This is more indentured servanthood. But he's talking about a heart more than he's talking about justice on the peripheral. Likewise, he who was free when he's called is a bondservant Christ. Meaning, if I'm free and I can do whatever I want, I really am Christ's slave. I'm here to serve him, not my own whims and wishes. In other words, don't look for any politician or form of government to save you or make your life better. Only Jesus saves and he allows you to live as a saved man in any form of government you find yourself in. Number three, in your desire to play God, you will have sinned if you trespass what God has reserved for himself. So if you do take vengeance, if you do take glory, you've trespassed. You've gone over the line of what's not yours, and that's called sin. And sin brings death. Where it makes you, when people start taking vengeance, they start either liking it or they get more angry. Death is starting to work in their life. Look at it like this. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, he did it. He ate the fruit because he was dissatisfied with God's will. He didn't trust God. He's like, is God lying to me? He might be lying. I'm dissatisfied with his will. And so he ignored God and trespassed. Murder, hatred of others, anger is pretty much the same offense. It's usually a dissatisfaction with the way God has set your world up. Anger is a sign. I'm, I don't like what's going on. I don't like it. 
God's allowed things to be this way, and I don't like it. Look at James. Go to James chapter 4. Look at 1 through 4. James is after Hebrews, to the right of Romans. James 4, 1 through 4. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. Coveting is wanting what is not yours, but thinking you deserve it. And in a way, coveting is dissatisfaction with God has given you. And then it keeps going. It says, uh, you can't obtain it, so you fight. You quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he links that with you adulterous people. In other words, what he's saying is when we think we know it's right and we're not getting it, we get mad and covetous and angry, we're playing God. The root of quarrels is your desire to have what's not yours. Controlling people often are those who want things the way they want them regardless if God has other plans or not. I don't care. I want it my way. Most stress that is killing us, I was talking to this guy, and uh, he said he had to take this stress test. And he said when he's at rest, his heart is still beating like he's running. And his doctor said, if you don't change, your stress level is going to kill you. And I said, what's killing you? He goes, worry and anger. Most stress that is killing people is because people have to have things their way. They don't see their wanting is not, and not getting and fretting. They don't see it as sin, but it is. If we go back to 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 26, I want to end with this. I think this is, I think this chapter is when David became king. In chapter 26, verse 8, remember I read the story where Saul's sleeping in camp and the spear's next to his head. In verse 8, David's friend, David's strong man, says this. His name was Abishai. Uh, said to David, God has given your enemy in your hand to stay. Now please, let me, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I won't strike him twice. Meaning, I, I can kill him right now, David. Just let me do it for you. For you. It's a favor to you. I'll kill him with the spear. Let me kill him right now. Take that spear, pop him. I don't have to do it twice. I'll lunge it in there. He's dead. He'll be dead. Come on, David. For you. David says no. Verse 9, don't destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And listen what David says in verse 10. I love what he says. It's a sign that he gets it. Verse 10, David said, as the Lord lives, meaning as he lives, he's alive. The Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Lord forbid that I should put out my hand. In other words, don't worry. God will take care of him his way. He'll die in battle or some other way. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. I believe this is the moment David became king in his heart. It's when he understood that being a king is letting God rule and trusting him. In verse 15, David was no longer, really in a sense, scared of Saul, no longer running 
in the, he wasn't angry with Saul. He's actually upset with Abner. Abner was the king's, you know, firsthand man. And David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? It's like, why didn't you watch the king? He's, he's sort of seeing, he's, he's no longer seeing himself as the one hunted, but God will take care of me. Proverbs 28.15. And if you combine that with Proverbs 16.32, says this, a wicked ruler, the person who's in charge, they are like a roaring lion and a charging bear. So a wicked ruler is the one who just pops off. It's mad right now. I'm going to tear this place up. I'm going to see things done now. That's a wicked ruler. Proverbs 16.32 says, The person who's slow to anger is mighty and will take over a city. In other words, the weak ruler, the immature ruler, is the one that thinks you need anger, fury, violence to rule. The mature, wise, respectable ruler is the one who's patient, who trusts God, doesn't get easily annoyed when they don't succeed. The calm person, the self-controlled person, the person who doesn't pout will rule. So my question for you is, do you play God? Or do you let God take care of your affairs? And when he does, you praise him, and other people do too.